When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. Skepticism. It's a word we hear a lot these days. Some examples of skepticism are the public are skeptical whether politicians will keep their campaign promises. Teachers are skeptical after little Janie says her pet budgie used her homework to feather its nest. And I'm skeptical of any ad that tells me that I can lose weight if only I try this bizarre contraption or try this odd tasting pill. These above are also pretty decent examples of healthy skepticism. The term skeptic is derived from the Greek skeptikos, meaning to inquire or to look around. Skeptics require additional evidence before accepting someone's claims as true. They are willing to challenge the status quo with an open mind and deep questioning of authority. But wait a minute, that doesn't sound at all like some of the people I know who call themselves skeptics. According to an article by Marilyn Price Mitchell, Ph.D. on Psychology Today, quote, It's easy to confuse being a skeptic with being a cynic, so let's define the terms. A cynic distrusts most information they see or hear, particularly when it challenges their own belief system. Most often, cynics hold views that cannot be changed contrary to evidence. Thus, they often become intolerant of other people's ideas. It's not difficult to find cynics everywhere in our society, from the halls of Congress to our own family dinner tables. I bet you know a bunch of them. Maybe you are one. I know I have been. I can find plenty of places on the internet, mostly echo chambers of closed-minded, quote-unquote, skeptics, droning on about how any effort connected to parapsychological study in any way is the realm of the crazy and stupid. That's interesting. Some of the smartest people that I've met are involved in exactly those pursuits. Almost all of them are more willing to have honest discussions around what they've been able to observe through rigorous scientific methods. Not only that, but they're willing to look at findings that may disagree with theirs. Entirely. In the hopes that maybe, through that, they're able to come closer to the real truth. Novel concept. They're skeptics. Yeah, I know. Herbert Spencer was an English philosopher, biologist, anthropologist, and sociologist famous for his hypothesis of social Darwinism. As well as being credited with, with coining the phrase survival of the fittest, he had strong opinions on open-mindedness as being indispensable when it comes to scientific inquiry. He said, and this is one of my favorite quotes, 
There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, which cannot fail to keep someone in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. (laughs) Put that in your cynical pipe and smoke it. Our guest for this episode talks to us on just exactly that topic. Craig Weiler is the science editor for Paranormal Daily News, a parapsychology journalist, author, and blogger. He covers controversies in parapsychology and occasionally other topics, as well as interesting studies, various researchers and projects, and the occasional topical subject related to parapsychology. In particular, Craig covered the TED controversy of 2013 extensively, as well as a Wikipedia controversy later in the year, and was the first to report on Russell Gruber's Mirror Worlds research. Look into it. Weiler talks about it more in his book, Psy Wars, TED, Wikipedia, and the Battle for the Internet. It follows the TED controversy while taking a broader look at why this sort of thing is happening in the first place. More of Craig's writing can be seen on his blog, The Weiler Psy. You can find that at weilerpsiblog.wordpress.com. Now it's time to hear from Morgan with her part of this episode. Insufficiency. The word hits most people as the equivalent of one word, lack. Lack of money, lack of food, lack of material goods, lack of respect, and at the core of all of it, a lack of self-love. Insufficient. Most of us can look back on our lives and resonate with this word on some level. In regards to the paranormal, insufficient is a word that often abounds. Insufficient evidence, insufficient resources, and insufficient solutions, experiments, or answers. Both sides have made the argument. The skeptical complain that there is insufficient evidence, which is factually not accurate, where parapsychologists often complain of insufficient resources or funding. So, what if? What if insufficient means something different? What if the root of the feeling of insufficiency is flawed? What if, culturally, we have been conditioned by our addiction to lack-based thinking to believe that insufficient is wrong? Now, I offer a possible new definition. What if insufficiency was actually the root of happiness? The root and beginning of the creative process. What if insufficiency breeds the beginning of molding the creative energy that brings us the most joy? We live in a society that demands immediate results. Molding the energetic clay, so to speak, and fine-tuning a creation is not something most people take pleasure in. They want it yesterday, and when they don't see it, they observe the lack, which sends them back to square one, debilitating the passion needed for the creative endeavor. But without insufficiency, would the creative endeavor have been started to begin with? Would the thought have been received or curated? Probably not. The insufficiency or contrast in our experience may indeed be the catalyst for happiness, I am insufficient is flawed as a negative because it means I no longer have the ability for expansion. Professor Joseph Campbell invested heavily in this concept. To explain his argument, the mythologist spoke of these same terms in the Sanskrit language. For Campbell, it remains humankind's most important spiritual language. Sat, the immutable being or essence of an entity. Chit, total consciousness. And Anatta, ecstasy, or outburst. These three concepts form the basis from which we may begin a true spiritual path. 
ultimately, that path begins from insufficiency, a need for expansion, a need for more. In the world of parapsychology, more and expansion is nearly the definition of the work itself. The study of consciousness, the ever-expanding mind, is the very foundation of psi research. It's about asking the hard questions about what is referred to as the hard problem. What is consciousness? Parapsychology could not exist without insufficiency and is perhaps one of the best examples of happiness being the basis of insufficiency itself. As much as many complain about the pitfalls and constantly moving bar, as well as often unreasonable scientific standards, Dr. Jessica Utz, president of the American Statistical Association, once demonstrated that had Advil been put to the same standards as many parapsychological tests, it would have failed miserably, yet we all still accept it as a cure for a headache. Insufficiency leads us to the joy and fun we all have in pursuing those answers. They are ever-expanding and often bring up far more questions than solutions. But as a paranormal researcher myself, I realized early on that we never get it done. And that is, indeed, a good chunk of the fun. Unfortunately, we've built a Western society fueled on insufficiency, and it has bled over into identity. Our identity, our spirit, and our personal accomplishments tend to be judged based on a faulty polarity insufficient to sufficient. We even tend to believe that having enough material goods, or in extreme cases, believing you must be perfect, must mean that you yourself must be then sufficient. Narcissists and sociopathic personalities often believe that they are indeed perfectly sufficient and infallible. Yet, if you have ever met one, they are perhaps the most miserable people you will ever meet. Bitter, angry and hollow in their existence, they tend to despise any sense of happiness that their prey may feel that is directly related to their actions. So, how does the absence of insufficient in the belief system make you miserable? Perhaps because the absence of the ability or willingness to expand and grow is what is indeed the thing that makes one miserable. Without the contrast, needed for that expansion, without the catalyst that insufficiency presents us, can we be happy in a finite universe? Loss aversion is a concept in psychology that may be relevant here. Loss aversion in cognitive psychology and decision theory refers to people's tendency to prefer avoiding losses to acquiring equivalent gains. It's better to not lose $50 than to find $50. The principle is very prominent in the domain of economics and politics. It is something that served us in the early days of survival, where the day's hunt was not guaranteed, but it's an extremely lack-based mind frame, and in order to plug into abundance, this ego-driven thought process may indeed be a way for the ego to protect itself from perceived loss and fear of insufficiency. However, in the context of happiness, it is much more fun to have the $50 in your, in your pocket, or is it? Is it more fun to find the $50? Though one might argue that having the $50 might feel more secure, the journey from not having the $50 to finding the bill randomly may point to the idea that the catalyst of insufficiency may indeed make finding the $50 much happier. The probability and the realization of finding or manifesting the bill 
especially through focused attention, is usually agreed upon as the more rewarding experience. A possible new definition of insufficiency is probabilities that have not yet manifested, as it is, indeed, the catalyst for the journey. The decision comes after that altered definition. Will the journey be a good one? That is a decision that belongs only to the adventurer. Our experiences are based on data, and our perceptions of that data are based on the story that we tell ourselves about said data. Things are neither good nor bad. They only take on the probability or vibration of the story being told about them. The current definition of insufficient permits people to be a victim, which is extremely addictive to the ego. However, it explains why the negative definition of insufficiency is so popular in personal relationships, politics, and even global issues. It is perhaps the best definition humanity has created to keep itself victimized because it keeps people in a state of lack. If things are insufficient based on the old definition, it gives people the reason and excuse to not be responsible for their manifestations. And if it changed to the concept that it is the catalyst for expansion, a lot of politicians would be out of work. We live in a universe of probabilities. It does not know lack. When you walk into a room, there is no dark switch, only a switch to illuminate. My python can enter the same dark room and with his ability to see into the UV and infrared ends of the light spectrum, does not observe the room as dark at all. There is no insufficiency of light. We just cannot see the level of light available. Insufficiency is similar. It is the beginning of a probability. Just because we can't see them does not mean the probabilities of creation are not present. And when we have already told ourselves that insufficient means ending, we have closed the door to those probabilities and therefore the happiness of new expansion that they offer. Pushing against the expansion that is truly the nature of our universe not only creates resistance but also emotional pain. Whenever we buck against the flow of events by way of denial, failing to heal wounds, or in non-acceptance, we create an emotional injury that bleeds. Fail to stop the bleeding and it will get messy really quickly. Here is where acknowledging insufficiency as the entry point to joy can begin to shape this new definition. And it comes back to one thing, a decision. Do we live in a friendly universe or a vicious one? How you answer this question will ultimately determine how you view the word insufficient. Will you choose it to be the catalyst to expansion or is it the bringer of war and greed? You cannot answer for another. You can only answer for yourself. In Canada, we are less known for our incredibly warm and fire-ridden summers and more for our extreme and often intensely cold winters. Many who come to Canada who are not used to such radical temperatures are often taken aback by the depth and frigid nature of our below-zero conditions. But one can't truly understand the encompassing nature of cold and ice until it's endured, because it comes with nuances and subtleties 
that can only be experienced by being truly present with the feelings, the disaffection, and the silence. As beautiful as it can appear on Christmas cards and in crystallized ice clinging to trees and rooftops, it can be encompassing and isolating. And while fire leaves sprouting pine cones and eventually new growth in its wake, the cold freezes with no regard for what is left behind. It is limitless in its ability to slowly kill life in all forms and removed completely from the damage it causes. This is, in fact, the nature of indifference, and it is one of the most insidious decisions that we make as people dealing with hauntings and dealing with one another. The attitude of indifference, whether it be as a coping mechanism for people dealing with something that they can't get their minds around or an actual lack of empathy itself, is possibly the most detrimental road a client can take. Firstly, the Webster's Dictionary definition of indifference actually defines indifference as a state of being. It is not merely something that is a physically done or is an attitude. It is a quality and a state. And I have found this to be inherently true in the people who I've interviewed that seem to suffer with this. However, it is usually the individuals around them who do most of the suffering. I've noticed that it's often a slow state of becoming. One rarely wakes up indifferent to trauma or even the joy that's going on in their experience. In haunting situations, I find that indifference rises its ugly head when someone in the family is struggling with accepting or processing the idea that something is occurring in their environment which they can't physically control. The disturbing nature of this reaction becomes apparent when a child or a spouse is being actively traumatized by the experience and the response of the other party is to dismiss the other with even less than an argument. Indifference is the emotionless emotion. Unconcern, unresponsive, detachment. They simply don't care enough. And the bigger problem is they don't care that they don't care. As an investigator, I've watched this insidious behavior destroy families and businesses like a virus. It's been noted in a paper in 2011 that apathy can occur in such disorders as schizophrenia, strokes, Parkinson's disease, progressive palsy, Huntington's disease, and dementias such as Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, and front temporal dementia. But independent of that, the ultimate consequence of all these conditions, including the psychiatric and drug-related causes, which I won't get into here, are pretty much the same, a complete lack of hope or happiness. In the world of the paranormal, this is a major problem towards the success of solving violent paranormal phenomenon, where I propose one of the chief solutions to aggressive paranormal activity is indeed the state of mind of the client themselves. The happier they get and the better that they're living, the less violent activity they seem to experience. My program, Teaching the Living, has demonstrated this relationship again and again. However, if the client is stuck in the state of apathy and indifference, they really don't care. Nor do they care that anyone around them is suffering. And this is a big problem. Some of the most severe cases of indifference will often come from narcissistic parents or the suffering of a child dealing with something that they don't understand 
or even child abuse presently occurring in the home goes unchecked or dismissed as an overreaction. However, often I have heard people trying to label this as ignorance, and I must beg to differ. Ignorance, usually, is being aware and unaware of the consequences or the severity of the consequences. Indifference, I would argue, is being made aware of the damage and choosing not to care about it. When a majority chooses indifference, the consequences become even more dire. Subject matters such as righteousness get easily slapped over top of it because then not only are you choosing indifference, you are choosing it for the greater good. This gives apathetic people the opportunity of feeling like a hero and the people around them feeling deliberately forgotten and abandoned because they indeed have been. Now, the indifferent people belong to something, a larger whole. It may be something that only a few are doing, but they're doing it for, quote-unquote, the right cause. Whatever they think, that happens to be at the time. Ultimately, however, the group indifference gives them justification to stop thinking any further, which closes them down to any possibility of learning or moving forward with the advice of an investigator or a researcher. They no longer feel the need to hear another opinion because they are being, quote-unquote, the bigger person. In the past, I have joked that it can feel like they're saying, watch me not care. However, the further I delve into this issue, the more accurate this actually seems. I've unfortunately encountered this while attempting to discuss the subject of psi with some scientific minds as well as other investigators. Even when statistical fact is presented in favor of a parapsychological explanation, their inability and unreasonable ego, which prevents them from receiving new information, creates indifference to the idea that their world construct must change. Their lack of wanting to hear anything that does not support their preconceived notions of what they believe is happening causes them to lose any interest in learning a new perspective, eventually becoming indifferent to the education that they desperately need in order to grow. This lack of growth is true spiritual subterfuge. Although they usually do not see it this way, often they view it as rejecting bad information, where in fact they are halting any hope of their own educational, spiritual, or emotional knowledge. Here lies the greatest issue with the indifferent state of being. The greatest danger with indifference, although it is a state of apathy, is that people still take action from that emotional or emotionless place. The action that results either ends in poor effort, mirroring their lack of care, or the effect mirrors their lack of empathy, resulting in something that can become far more frightening. The action, or lack thereof, from the state of indifference can be the catalyst to a haunting becoming far worse for a family and a staff or household feeling isolated and neglected to the widespread apathy of a nation who fail to act on a genocide. The examples are at the extreme ends of the comparison, but the emotion underneath is often the same. Unconcern, unresponsiveness, detachment. Rarely does indifference reside in only one area of a person's life. It tends to seep like a slow rot into nearly everything one touches, and the abandonment those around them feel has a greater detrimental effect than an emotional outburst. It is said 
that silence speaks louder, and there is perhaps no greater truth in that than in the case of indifference. In paranormal research, the damage is probably the most evident in children. Some of these are adult children who struggled with mediumship or psi abilities when they were younger and whose struggles were ignored when they asked for help. I've spoken to countless adults who clearly remember the poor treatment from their parents when they explained that they had seen something that frightened them, and often an attitude of indifference is what seems to leave the most scarring. Many of those wounds, as I speak to them and hear the anger bubble to the surface as they explain their story, have not been healed. Feeling unheard and invalidated, these adults tend to take on the very dysfunction that scarred them carrying on the legacy of apathy and lack of emotional investment into any situation that requires human empathy. Indifference can also be a mask for envy, causing accomplishments in children or other adults to be demeaned, diminished, and dismissed. Whether this be in the form of evidence, achievements, or goals, the lack of enthusiasm or empathy for another's joy can be just as toxic as criticizing it outright. In an investigation or research environment, this jealousy can cause the focus of the research to be lost and breakthroughs missed. A lack of encouragement erodes the self-esteem, like a harsh wind grinding away on a rock face. Eventually, it dulls the edges and reshapes its contours over a long period of time, unbeknownst to the rock. How do we combat this, as both researchers and as human beings? It's a big question. Indifference issues a demand for focused attention in connection with personal values, ethics, and beliefs. It's a lack of action and is ultimately a call for action. However, this action does not begin externally, but it begins as the internal work of us as individuals and educators. As paranormal researchers and as human beings, how do we begin? to alter a culture of indifference. Ultimately, there is no way of forcing a person to put energy or empathy into anything. And as Carl Jung stated, what we resist persists. However, we can begin to break down the causes, and it starts with our own expressions of apathy. As we discussed at the beginning of this journey, indifference, like the cold and the ice of the winter months, is a silent killer. In nature, it looks like a slow freeze. Animals and plants initially feel cold, and then the cold begins to numb. Eventually, hypothermia takes hold, and oddly, we begin to feel a strange, sleepy warmth as we acclimate to the abuse of the environment. Eventually, sleep takes hold, and death or complete lack of further growth becomes inevitable. The thaw can only begin by actively seeking the warmth. It means recognizing that the initial pain or belief that leads to indifference must be treated with attention and care, but it also requires the self-awareness to do so. There are multiple causes for the nature of indifference, but unlike other forms of negative emotion, we must deal with as researchers. The insidious nature of this spiritual subterfuge requires a deep examination of ourselves and the breeding grounds of indifference. Open wounds, unforgiveness, old anger, desensitization, and depression can spell the beginnings or continuation 
of a legacy of damage. However, a deep freeze rarely does well in the sunlight, and shining the light of awareness onto the seeds laid in dismissal can be the breakthrough which causes an apathy to wither and fail to grow. Regardless of the cause, the damage that can incur from indifference usually begins with a slow internal rot, manifesting in external chaos. With the undeniable relationship between psi activity and emotion, as well as an attitude expressed by certain scientific groups, indifference stands as one of the most difficult and foreboding issues facing parapsychology's inevitable spring season. Welcome to the interview part of Supernatural Circumstances that I just love because every time we get into these conversations, it is just so fascinating. And I think I think our listeners feel the same way about that. It's, it's so in-depth. And I think we're touching on a subject today that is really, really unique, but needs to be talked about because it's, you know, it goes around the parapsychology community vastly in terms of criticism and, and uh, in a, in a million other facets. But the, the first thing that I really wanted to get into, Craig, with you is, is about skeptics. And you've got a really unique story in that you didn't jump through all the academic loopholes that a lot of people did when they were starting out. You graduated Berkeley, you had a paranormal blog for a while. But tell the audience a little bit about how you got into all of this. When I first started getting into parapsychology, that was about in 2008 uh, when, so blogging was just starting to become a thing and there were just starting to be platforms for blogging. And I started to blog on the supernatural on a relatively well-known site and got all kinds of blowback from people just on talking about psychic stuff, really, really negative comments. I was like, what on earth is this? I'd never run into anything like it. And so these people were throwing out things like, oh, well, you're a psychic. Maybe you should take James Randi's million dollar challenge for psychics. Okay, let me go look at what it is. So I did. And I saw that basically it, it didn't meet any scientific criteria whatsoever. And that uh, the criticisms of it seemed to be very good. Uh, this told me two things. First of all, the people that were asking me to do this challenge didn't appear to have looked into it at all. And these people were supposedly these objective skeptics. And they didn't really know much. And then they made claims that there's no evidence for psychic ability. So I checked into the science. So I kept, so my initial experiences were questioning the skeptics, just going after what they were saying and verifying whether they were whether they knew what they were talking about and this was a really fascinating experience because it was really clear after maybe a month of looking into parapsychology that I knew way more than they did yeah I I so get that and one of my professors a really good friend uh, of mine uh, Dr. Nancy Zingroni she did a uh, amazing thesis about of skeptics and about exactly what you're talking about and it, it always really just hung a chord with me I, I I thought it was so brilliant because so many so much of the time I think this stuff gets 
pinned as something that is pseudoscience by people who have literally no idea what it is. And I think the the one area where we saw that, I think, extremely publicly was when the very renowned Rupert Sheldrake, uh, when he did his TED Talk, The Science Delusion, and it was removed. Um, that was, to me, one of the most public statements of where people people stand on on that subject. And do you relate with that as well? Uh, this is actually the subject of my book. Yeah. Uh, the uh, what what happened with Rupert Sheldrake at, at TED Talks? Uh, I would agree with you was a was an amazing demonstration of just where the skepticism is and how far they will go to maintain that. Uh, and it was over the years with these skeptics going back and forth of them. It was clear that they don't know much about psychic ability, but boy, do they have strong opinions on it. And then from there, you begin to realize that this isn't about science at all. This is about defending a belief. Uh, and this is something you saw in the TED Talks was that there were these skeptics defending their beliefs. Yeah. And it, this thing ballooned into like a you know, thousand comments in some threads. It just really turned into a huge discussion. And many intellectual luminaries jumped into the fray, uh, making the whole thing the largest impromptu discussion on the various philosophies of reality that, that you could find. It was this huge impromptu discussion about all that uh, with a whole bunch of nastiness thrown in. It was an amazing experience. Yeah, I bet. And uh, just talk about a, a little bit about your book. It's it's for the audience. It's called Psy Wars, Ted, Wikipedia and the Battle for the Internet. And it's it's brilliant. And I'll just read a bit of the synopsis here on the on the back so that the audience can go out and go out and buy it because it's really great. <laughs> uh, and it was in journalistic fashion. You demonstrate how science, the accepted arbiter of truth, is constantly being manipulated and propagandized in an effort to uphold prejudices and beliefs in the scientific community. And I think that synopsis right there is so profound. And it's something I, I think a lot of people don't really think about in terms of the paranormal. And you bring up something that's super important, and that's the propaganda side of science in this field. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, when I was right, first of all, before I wrote the book, I'd begun assembling materials on the skeptics themselves and the whole system that they use to push their ideas. And I wrapped that into the book. So part of the book is telling the story of what happened at TED. And part of the book, uh, basically every other chapter, deals with uh, the background. What, what is this skeptic side? Who are these people? And what are they doing? And how are they doing it? That part of the book is what uh, what really outlines how the media and science in general gets pushed towards uh, disbelieving in psychic ability because they're basically being marketed out of that idea. The uh, there are so first of all they instead of going science against science, which they really can't do because they would fall apart right right away with that, they instead use talking points. So you'll hear over and over and over again, there is no evidence for psychic ability. Parapsychology is a pseudoscience. In all of the history of their experiments, there's never been 
they've never demonstrated that they've been able to accomplish this. Complete lies, all of it, but it gets repeated over and over again so that it becomes truthy. Yeah. Something that people believe, but doesn't really have any substance to it. And then they avoid uh, confrontations, mostly, if almost entirely, because those confrontations would reveal the fact that they really don't know very much. What, what a timely topic. <laughs> holy, <Isn't it? laughs> holy smokes. The methods are nearly identical to what you would find in climate change deniers. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And in various other topics, many of them political, uh, it's it's the same sort of thing. People start with their belief system and then wrap all their logic around it to try to make it fit. Yeah, I and, and over the years, you know, when you look back on a, a lot of this this garble that that comes from that side of the fence, you, you can you can easily see exactly what you're talking about. Like, you know, one thing I find about the points that you've you've made throughout the book and through just throughout the time that I've known you is the fact that when we go back and we you look at these these issues, it's really easy to see it after you know what you're looking at. And you talk about the fact that there is a, a real division within the sciences about that the nature of consciousness and the legitimacy of parapsychology as a science, where do you think this division is stemming from? Because it's, it's not science-based like you're, like you're saying. I, I think the way to understand this is to first look at who the skeptics are. And what you find out really quickly is that all skeptics are atheists. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe it's not 100%, but it's definitely 99.99999% that skeptics are atheists. And this tells you something about where they're coming from, that they're they're operating from an atheistic viewpoint. And then if you dial that down, you find out that the skeptics fall under the category of anti-theist. And, and you, there's a 2013 University of Chattanooga study that, that breaks down the various types of atheism. And you find that uh, anti-theists are about 25%. So these, your, your anti-theist is your, your basic uh, blowhard that attacks religion, uh, usually online, as being infantile, stupid, and inconsistent. Right. So you dial down from the anti-theist, and then you get the skeptics, who are basically m- materialists. Mm-hmm. So the skeptics are all operating, um, and again, I say all because that's pretty much when you when you when somebody self-describes as a skeptic, they are actually a materialist atheist. So you're looking at people with a very specific viewpoint. Now, the reason I can say materialist atheist is um, because when you look at the various things that skeptics attack, one of them is all holistic medicine. In fact holistic everything, they simply can't handle the ambiguity involved in that. Uh, And you also find uh, within the skeptical community, things that indicate that you're dealing with a a dysfunctional group. And one of those things is uh, misogyny. Right. My conclusion from the, the things that I've discovered about the skeptical communities is that they lean towards authoritarian personality types who are interested in science. That's fascinating. And, you know, it's funny because 
the more you talk about it, the more I, I can see this re reflected in my own experiences with, with with people that you just you get into a conversation with, and it's not a conversation; it's them trying to dictate to you why you're wrong. And it mm -hmm. it seems like it, it seems like that's that's entirely the case. Like very very rarely are, do you get into a a conversation, or at least in in my experience, with somebody who's skeptical that is is not of of that group and so that's that's really interesting now we, we've talked sort of a lot about the the term science and it it gets thrown around a lot lately especially as a as a buzzword almost and that almost translates to i think uh, almost like a uh egregore of truth like it is you know once once you say the word science then that's the only truth and that's it um, and but we know and we've seen for years that scientists can be manipulated, they can be bought off, that research can be fabricated. How do you see this happening with with the parapsychology community? In terms of the, the monetary aspect, the parapsychology, from what I've been able to see, seems to be relatively free of uh, financial influences. Mm -hmm. there, there, there does not seem to be that I've been able to see anything to indicate that the skeptics are drawing upon some in uh, some corporate uh, pool of money to help uh, push away parapsychology. You might find that with uh, holistic medicine, some holistic medicines, um, you know, for example, homeopathy. Mm -hmm. But uh, in general, there, I, I haven't seen anything where there's a flood of cash for the skeptics to go after something in a really directed um obviously um obviously money powered way yeah is it because that they these corporations don't feel threatened at this point i i really can't go there because uh, i i don't know in general there isn't a lot of money or, or or things to market around parapsychology there's not a lot to sell so there tends so from some from what i've seen Parapsychology tends not to attract people who are interested in making a killing mm -hmm. or being super famous because those things generally don't occur within the field. So you don't have this huge battle for power. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and and you're right. I mean, the, everybody, I think everybody in the parapsychology world, I think, is always complaining about like, where's the, where is the money? Where is the yeah. funding? Oh my god. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's just that's just blanket. So I mean, there, there, you're right. There, there isn't there. It really isn't that much to draw on. I think there's been you know such a controversy over the nature of reality and our it because it, it has such a profound effect on society and our views on the world and, and things like that. Um, is this something that's, this is, is propaganda intermingled in that? Um, I know you talk about in the book um, uh, that that type of thing is, is kind of alive and well in the world of science and it, it influences our daily lives. So how do you feel about, how do you feel and see this particular topic being manipulated in our day-to-day -day lives in the media? The skeptic organizations, uh, uh, the Committee for Skeptical Investigations uh, and the Center for Inquiry and all these people, they are, they are basically uh, nonprofit marketing organizations. That's what they do. They market. Yeah. Uh, they are designed to market this idea of materialism that they have, which is this uh, ultra, 
ultra materialistic view of the world where they're on a crusade against Santa Claus and chiropractors, right? Uh, acupuncture, nat naturopathy, homeopathy. That one makes them turn red in the face. Um, they, and so they make it a habit to get into, to, they, they make it a habit of targeting regular media and pushing their message out there when they have an opportunity. They're, that's what yeah. they do. That that's specifically to the thing. So they tried to get the, they tried to get their uh, skeptical inquirer cited. They write articles for the Guardian and Huffington Post and wherever else you know whoever else will listen to them. And basically, you know, pound the drum for their beliefs. It's and by doing this over and over again. Uh, they, they're largely successful, chiefly because parapsychology has no equivalent. Yeah, and, that, and I think you bring up a really good point with that, because the, there really there really isn't. And, you know, and it, it's interesting to me that there seems to be, unlike in many other areas of of science, that there seems to be a real almost vindictiveness that's underneath of it. And you don't see this in many other areas, but it seems like to me that there is like a, an agenda that is that is being pushed. And it's so strange. It's something that I don't entirely understand. Like I remember when um, uh, when Wikipedia uh, like first came out and then you, people were uploading content and papers and things like that to Wikipedia. And then the Wikipedia articles started to be edited and changed deliberately to skew the results of, you know, this, that, and the other experiment that was going on with parapsychology. And I remember thinking even back at that time, how, like, how profound that was, the amount of work that it takes to sit down and rewrite this stuff in a way that is purposely skewing the, the results of, of something that is as fundamental as our understanding of consciousness. It's so odd. It, Mike, what do you think about that? Well, I'm just thinking how <laughs> right now I, I was just going to type you a message and say, I feel like a moron right now. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've believed in a lot of this marketing. I, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm just a guy who, you know, I frequent sites like Reddit and, you know, other boards where people just talk about stuff. And I, I'm one of those people who have been caught in this marketing, this skeptical marketing, as Craig puts it. And um, it just feels like, oh, whoa. Uh, ever since I started this show with, with you, Morgan, like I came in as the guy who you know, okay, I'm a little skeptical, but let's explore this. And my mind is blown half the time <laughs> um, with guests like you, Craig, uh, you really are helping me to, to be a little more open-minded, if that makes any sense. It, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Be before I started in on this journey, I was pretty much in your shoes. I started out uh, you know, basically believing what the skeptics had said, that there wasn't any evidence for psychic ability. There was nothing to look at. It was all a big nothing burger, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started to push more into it that I discovered anything different. Now, the only difference between me and the skeptics was that I felt that the skeptics had to prove their point. Yeah. Right. 
that was the that was the big one is that the skeptics had to prove their point. And as I got deeper and into it, it was clear that that just was not happening. I think that's that's such a powerful position to take uh, because I think at least in in some of the exchanges that I've had, I, I mean, not all of them. I mean, I've you know, I've I've talked with with a number of skeptics that have been you know very open minded in terms of what they were you know what they were hearing and what they were taking in, but the so not to demonize ever, all of them, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, but it was is interesting that it was interesting that in a lot of these cases, um, yeah, there's 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 a condescension that's that's. Mm-hmm. That's there, um, and Mike, you you might have experienced this too at one point. Um, but yeah, there's a condescension that's there. There's a um, almost like a high and mighty attitude of you know your your opinions or what you're presenting is just blatantly stupid. It's not that you know oh this could be changed or there might be an error that it's just blatantly stupid. And I and I find that's where we get into kind of the like you call them Craig like the gorilla skeptics and I love that term <laughs> uh, can that's you... their own term by the way it, that's a that's an actual organization is it re- can you talk about that a little bit because I the, see I didn't know that the gorilla skeptics are an incredibly secretive organization that operates solely for the purposes of editing Wikipedia oh. wow they, in fact uh, they got called on the carpet uh, by by Wikipedia administrators recently, but you know nothing nothing came of it because they really didn't have any evidence because the guerrilla skeptics made sure it stayed that way. They operate out of private Facebooks and and keep their membership closed off from inquiry. Uh, I know I heard I, I kind of heard that they they're very very selective about their vetting process for people who join the group. So it's probably not going to happen that somebody gets in there and you know infiltrates them <laughs> yeah. at any rate we don't I, I don't really know for sure what they do uh and the people that claim that they're good don't either huh. so there isn't a lot to know about them other than that uh, i uh, apart from a training video i saw the uh the training video demonstrated that they're very atheist materialist in their out in their outlook and they make it their job to push psychics and other spiritual types off the site so that they they just disappear from wikipedia it's just wild like because i think when people when people get into this this subject i think the, the majority at least i remember 20 years ago when i first got into this you know i i i expected of course there to be the people that you know were the non-believers or the people that were you know on the fence or the people like it it seemed it it seemed very i i don't know like there was there was sort of the gray area and then you had the people who were just like nope nope no none of this happens and and whatever but i i think what's so powerful about this conversation and about like your book and the research that you've done is that this is so much more than that <laughs> and it's it's so much it's so much deeper than just you know people that have just decided well i you know i'm not into that or i, or I don't believe it but that there's this this agenda that seems to be going on uh, what do you what do you think is the root cause behind why these people are doing this because this takes effort like this is time and effort that they are plugging into something that doesn't really affect them. I would, so 
the motivation for that, uh, from what I can see, is that uh, they are basically what I would term evangelical materialists. Mm, I like that. So they ha are motivated by their beliefs. Uh, they're basically, you know, the equivalent of the far end of the spectrum evangelical Christians right. or pretty much any other religion where you have the, the normal people, you know, of course it's a spectrum. So you have the normal people in the middle that are just like, Hey, whatever, everybody. And then the ones that are kind of pushing to one side going, you know, I feel kind of strongly about this, but I'm not really going to do anything about it. And then the ones at the far end that are going, this is it. This is the truth. Right. Yeah. So that the skeptics fall in that last category and they're motivated very strongly by their need to push their beliefs on other people. What do you think their view is of, and this is all pure, <laughs> pure, pure speculation, but what do you, what do you think their, their view is on, you know, people like us, people who are parapsychologists like parapsychologists or people who are research parapsychology, uh, do they seem to think that we're just misguided? We're not looking at the truth. What what has been your take on on that as you've looked into this? Well, first of all, they when I've had conversations with people who are you know on that on that far extreme end of things, they they don't listen to me. They don't respect me. Uh, they don't give my expertise uh, any value or credibility at all so they're assigning me and all of my information zero credibility and they're assigning everybody who agrees with them 100 credibility so when the, so when you say you know what how do they look at this side well they don't really look at it because to them right. it's all it's all them out there doing their woo stuff being completely irrational while i sit here myself being a completely rational an intellectual superior human being because I know that none of that stuff exists. It's so interesting that that kind of ideology exists in the <laughs> in the parapsychology world because Mike, you were saying you know earlier at the beginning of this conversation how relevant this mm -hmm. is to so much. Yeah, it's it's like watching you know it's it's really hard to argue with a wall, <laughs> you know, like if there's no yeah if there's no openness to any dialogue how do you how do you approach this with somebody who is of that mindset my uh so initially i would argue with them uh, and i did that more for my own benefit than for theirs <laughs> yeah. because i knew that they, i wasn't going to convince them but also i uh, i came from a very argumentative background and i just couldn't help myself for a while and i knew i needed to get over that so I would argue with them for a while and it would lead absolutely nowhere uh, because when it came down to it, they just wouldn't accept any source that they didn't already agree with. Mm -hmm. So what I, what I learned from that was that uh, when I see somebody approach a subject with absolutely no ambiguity at all, in other words, they're saying this is the way things are instead of, you know what, I think, then that person was not worth having a discussion with and it was time to move on because there was absolutely going to be nothing to be gained other than losing about half an hour typing right. from the experience. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that. Oh, that is just not the truth. Yeah, that's been my experience with a lot of folks like that because you know, like I say, um, I was one of those close-minded folks for a long time. I didn't go to the extreme of trying to uh, erase things on Wikipedia, but I was just like, yeah, I'm not interested in in that at all. But um, just through life experience itself and through my own explorations, I started to uncover things that I couldn't explain. And uh, like, is it that they aren't, they don't see that? I I remember a story from a really, I guess, famous uh, skeptic, Michael Shermer, I believe his name is. And he yes, talks about Michael this Schirmer. this radio uh, that was uh, in his in his in a drawer, and after somebody died, it played a song or something like that. Just like came alive, it hadn't been working for years, and came alive and played this song that reminded him of the person who had passed away. Um, and he said, "Well, interesting, you know, something's going on there." And then later, he was interviewed about that, and he was just like, "No." you know, completely closed to the whole idea again. I guess he had rationalized it away in his own mind, even though it was an experience that happened to him specifically. That is typical of that type of skepticism, that uh, when they're presented with an experience that they can't fit within their worldview, uh, it it breaks their cosmic egg for a little while, but then they put it back together mm-hmm. uh, because they can't. They, they can't incorporate it. They would have to change their mind. And, you know, for somebody like Shermer, who's made a career out of uh, making fun, uh, basically made a career out of staying within this certain group and feeding off of it, uh, you know, monetarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, he's, he's like a preacher uh, for these uh, evangelical materialists. And so he makes his living by preaching to those people who in turn support him. So he's, you know, if he, if he changes his mind, he's basically messing with his money, you know, his gravy train. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, it makes you wonder, you know, with, as as this, as research and quantum physics and uh, parapsychology and all, you know, all of these different areas of research are becoming more prevalent. They're intertwining with, as I say, things like quantum physics and our understanding of particle physics and whatnot is becoming greater. It's going to be interesting to see at some point if this level of skepticism just becomes antiquated, uh, like with, in- including with the general public. Like I think with, with the parapsychology community, it is extremely antiquated, but it'll be interesting to see if it becomes antiquated eventually with the general public and everybody starts looking at them in the same way that people are looking at, you know, flat earthers and, and things like that. I, I don't know. Is, am I off base with that? No. Um, what I've been observing over the years uh, since, you know, about 2008 is as the internet has gotten uh, farther and farther into everybody's lives, the the skeptics who had initially jumped on the internet and completely taken taken and completely took control of the uh, discussion early on are now battling uh, on many fronts against people who have their own avenues to to share what they know because the internet doesn't allow the kind of gatekeeping that has kept skeptics in business for literally a century and more. 
and without without the gatekeeping, they they have more of a struggle in defending their position. A couple of things have happened with the internet. Uh, one of them is that uh, you know obviously we have the Sci Encyclopedia by the uh, Society for Psychical Research, which is an encyclopedia with a massive amount of information on scientific research into uh, all sorts of topics. And then you have all these different people who can get out there and share scientifically based messages uh, about uh, psychic ability. And so the skeptics, instead of being able to completely dominate the discussion, now have to compete. And this, is, this has definitely changed the discussion over time because the skeptics aren't getting the respect that they used to have. And you can kind of see that uh, in terms of stuff getting out there that the uh, mainstream publications are generally publishing both views now where it might've been only one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's an advantage I, I think that's coming and it's it's coming with, like you were saying, the you know, concepts like the internet where there, you know, there are no gatekeepers on this, that it's not just about, you know, certain, certain industries or individuals getting that, you know, famous attention or press attention or anything like that. And I think too, that the paranormal has become far more of a household word. I mean, it, thanks to even just, even some of the God help me for this one, but even for some of the in in the the case of entertainment, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it helped it deliver it into a a household name, and so that conversation can now be had at the dinner table. So there's more people that are coming forward and saying, "I've had these experiences," and they I think they feel safer in coming out with saying, "I've had these experiences," which makes it easier for them to. I negate or not buy into the, you know, the mainstream opinion that maybe the skeptics once had. Yeah, that's part of it. And uh, there was another uh, aspect of the skepticism in that they, when they have to compete, they have to start selling their point of view. In other words, they have to convince people that their point of view is the true one and, you know, not the one that they're competing against. And they're really bad at that because really it's all reactionary. All they can really do is say, no, this doesn't exist. Well, why? Because it doesn't. And that's yeah. pretty much the end of their argument. They, uh, you know, well, it, you know, science, um, you know, according to science, it doesn't exist. Well, explain yourself. No, they can't. Yeah. So they keep running into that problem. And that's part of what's, um, what's making life difficult for them. Not to mention the fact that the public is generally absolutely done with all sorts of extremism. Yeah, isn't that the truth? I, you know, I was just gonna, I was just gonna bring that up in the in the sense that you know, you've you've got people that are just like the skeptics saying, just this is black and white and and whatnot. And I think we've learned, especially over the last, I would say, five years, that you know what we're hearing has to be questioned. You have to ask why you have to go and look things up you have to you know you can't buy into the idea that you know if you're a researcher well you're just crazy or you're just a conspiracy theorist no you have to ask these questions you have to go look things up you have to be able to do this and i feel like that's that mentality is is really going to start to benefit the parapsychology community at this point where instead of them being able to just you know run willy-nilly and say you know this doesn't exist because i'm talking louder uh, <laughs> they can at least least people can at least turn around 
go to places like the Science Cyclopedia, which for audience listening, fantastic website. I can't stress that one enough. Um, you know, to be able to go look this stuff up, it's becoming more readily available. These resources are out there more. Um, and, you know, people can people can go in and, and check this out and check out some extremely bright minds that are at the forefront of, of some of this research, which I, I find, at least in my classrooms and my live shows, a lot of people weren't aware of. Well, that's, yeah, and the um, the actual information out there, uh, I for for the audience, I was just at a scientific conference uh, that lasted four days, so I had a look at some of the, the some of the stuff that's out there. It uh, it what I tell people is it's not really a good day at one of these conferences unless your mind is absolutely completely blown by something. Absolutely, and that was certainly the case a couple of times. Is that you know my mind would just get blown by what was being discovered. Uh, and, you know, there are so many aspects to this, which are obviously going to be very helpful for mankind at some point, when we finally get past that, uh, you know, finally get over the hump that it, and it's, it, that, I mean, we're talking things like healing cancer, um, being able to understand what's hap what's going to happen in the future and being able to prepare for it. Uh, with, I, I'm not talking about stuff led by futurists, but I'm talking about remote viewing where, mm -hmm. where people um, through, a, a, through remote viewing a lot of people and going through a very strong statistical process, you have a pretty good idea on what's gonna happen in 30, 40, 50 years. Um, you know, these things are available to us. Uh, the, yeah. the healing is available to us. There's, um, you know, everything from uh, an AI oracle to um, understanding psychic ability and, and reality better. There's just all kinds of stuff going on. And there's, because there's this wealth of information slowly coming out of parapsychology, uh, that will grab people and then the skepticism doesn't really even get on the table at that point. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. And I firmly agree with the idea that, you know, these these conferences that are out there that are available for people to attend, you don't have to be, you know, in some high level university to go and attend these things. They're they're out there for you to go and 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 visit and in, interact with online and, and all sorts of things. They're they're available. Um, you know, there's there, there's been, I think, so much talk over the years of and, and the media has not helped with this that the idea that oh well if you're you know if you're psychic or you're this or you're that then you know you've got to be some unique and special person and it's you know only for like a certain classification of person and I, I think one of the things that is so powerful about parapsychology is that this is something that empowers people on a, a, a unbelievable level like if you not only do you walk out of these places with your mind blown, but I find you also walk out of these places with a completely new understanding about who you are, what you're capable of doing, what you're able to accomplish in your life. It kind of takes the the limits off of you know what you what you thought about yourself. And I often wonder when we get into these these situations with you know skeptics that are just hammering down on. Um, you know this this it just doesn't exist and whatnot. 
I really wonder if there's an underlying theme of fear, because it just seems to me like that is a anybody that's trying to control their world and control everything. Fear is usually the number one motivator. Uh, but what do you think about that, Craig? Uh, I think that absolutely everything I've seen points to that uh, particular viewpoint. Uh, there is. Uh, I recently wrote about uh, some research, Russell Gruber's uh, Mirror Worlds research, where he was showing that skeptics in telepathy studies would miss targets at at rates that were greater than chance, which, yeah. which was indicating that they that they at some level they knew what the target was, but because they didn't want to believe in psychic ability, they were. Uh, subconsciously missing missing those targets. And that, to me, is powerful. It's powerful. And it really leans, funny funny enough, leaning more to the the, the evidence and the the outcome that we, we're really creating our reality, whether we like it or not. That's one of the conclusions I've come to is there, um, I, I think when we're talking about creating reality, that it's a, it's a tremendously complicated process, most of which we don't understand, but that we can certainly, we're certainly capable of nudging our reality in various directions based upon our beliefs. That is really clear. So you asked me the question of, you know, the, the whole fear part. I think that's really all it is. Skeptics, um, when people have asked about their background, tend to come from uh, backgrounds that were highly religious growing up. So they dealt yeah. with overly religious parents, which they rejected in favor of something that they saw that they believed was more rational, which was science. But they seem to have gone way past what science actually is and over uh, into the other end, which we call scientism, which is when, when you treat science like the truth, you're, you're into scientism because that's not really what science is. And, you know, these are all fear-based. And when you're, when you're trying to convince everybody else uh, that you're right, who are you really trying to convince, right? Yeah, and that 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 in and of itself is so powerful because it, you know it, the the argument becomes so so passionate, especially on their end, so passionate and so deep and so anger driven that you you know that it's coming from somewhere else other than you know I'm just here to support my position because when you're when you're there to support your position and you're confident in your position, then. It, this level of of manipulation doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, you don't feel the need to step out and start manipulating other people's perspective or points of view or whichever. You present an argument and say, "Hey, you know what? Here's what I found," and it, so that's something I, I see as well. And you're you're mentioning uh, Gruber's work, and it's it's so interesting. And for the audience that wants to check this out, it, it's really phenomenal. And uh, he called it with the, the mirror world effect and a sort of a synopsis of this is like the mirror universe in Star Trek, where people from the mirror universe have a darker frame of mind, which has led them into a darker, more hostile society. Low believers have the same access to their useful psychic abilities, but subconsciously reject the correct information because they don't believe in it. It isn't much of a stretch to imagine that this kind of rejection is probably carrying over into other areas of their lives. I think that's absolutely profound statement. Uh, that was the one that stuck out for me. So the reason I, so, so I was the one that named it mirror worlds because that really stuck out for me. If you look at this information on a graph, 
It's literally a mirror. You have, uh, when you divide this, this, you know, this bar graph into uh, believe, high believers and low believers, you see on the one end of this graph, the skyscrapers for the high believers are facing up and the skyscrapers for the low believers are facing down. They're literally mirrors of each other. And the, the extent to which you, and if the, uh, when you look at the grades of the information, they're, the more you believe, the stronger the effect, and the less you believe, the stronger the effect in the opposite direction. Literally mirrors on a graph. It's just phenomenal. I mean, Mike, and I, we've we've talked so many times here about uh, exactly that, that, you know, whatever your mindset is, wherever your belief is sitting, wherever mm -hmm. your intention is sitting, you get it. Yeah, <laughs> you you get it back. And I mean, how many times have we had that conversation here on Supernatural Circumstances? Almost every show. Every show. It's, it's phenomenal. And it's so interesting to see it in this context, because I think the, the misnomer is, well, you know, you just you, you only get what you want. Well, yeah, but what do you what are you asking for? And if you're asking for a demonstration that this doesn't work and that this doesn't exist, you get it. And I so I just think this this research is phenomenal. And I'll, I'll read a little bit here for, for the audience about um, uh, one particular experiment in 2006. Um, in two experiments, they asked the test subjects to intentionally miss the target. In the first experiment, the participants missed the targets, exceeding expectations. In the second experiment, however, high believers performed the task asked of them. But amazingly, the low believers actually started getting hits in excess of chance. It appears that the psychic ability is functioning, but that the low believers are using it to act against the requested intent of the experiment. <laughs> like, it's a, that's so such an interesting conclusion and perspective on this, Mike. What do you think? I don't know. I, I feel like I have to go away and, uh, and think <laughs> after every after every show I, I tend to have a have a sit <laughs> and and meditate on on what we've learned because seriously every every show uh, we're talking to somebody different who blows my mind and again Craig you've done that well, thank you I guess yeah <laughs> no it's good it's the the best thing it's the best thing craig where can people find your book where can they find your papers more information on you lay it on the audience you can find a lot of articles that i've written at paranormal daily news where i am the science editor and my book is on amazon Psy wars ted wikipedia and the battle for the internet and it's available the author is white crow books i'm we'll sorry not the author of the, the um the publisher is White Crow Books. We will we'll be posting all of that for for the audience, so you, everybody will get links and and they can they can go and grab that. Um, Craig, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I think this is probably one of the most enlightening conversations, and probably one of the most um, I think challenging conversations for 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 people listening, so that they can really sit back and reevaluate, you know, what they're taking in. What have they what have they been reading? Where is it coming from? And getting people like we always talk about here to ask, ask the big questions and ask, ask the hard questions because they're not always easy. So thank you so, so much for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure.
Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Health Care. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Health Care, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the on-stage process. This process is great for when you feel like you're being called to something more in your life, but may not feel the support or that these things are even possible for you. Sometimes it's good to remember that our audience is not simply strangers watching, but there is support in the crowd. Close your eyes and imagine yourself backstage. You're behind the curtain of a beautiful theater. Imagine the lights, the sounds, the textures of the curtains and the beauty of your elegant surroundings. The audience is full and you hear your name being called from the stage as they want you to come forward. It's in that moment you realize that the stage is not just a stage. It's life. Your life. You step out onto the platform, and as you walk to the front and out from under the lights, you notice the audience is full of shining faces. Who's in your audience? Remember, not all of your support are physical people living today. Who is it that is there, knowing, trusting, and believing in who you are and what you do? Perhaps they are simply energy, the totality of non-physical energy, loving, excited, and thrilled about your expansion. Your being there is enough. Feel your beingness expand into the theater. Breathe deeply. That's very important. Imagine your light filling the theater and shining brightly until you realize you're no longer a physical being standing on the stage at all. Feel the brightness of your light and the radiant center of your soul. All of Source is here to back up the very light that is you. When you're ready to come back down to the stage, breathe deeply again. You are ready. You're expansive. You are eternal. And you are ready to step in the next phase of your physical experience. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at entityseeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at darkpatine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernaturalcircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>